been at this church now for three years. I've been to a lot of y'all's places, and a lot of y'all's places I've come into, um, I catch y'all watching TV, and I can't count the number of times I've walked into folks' houses and found them watching westerns. Westerns. Now, I've never gotten into westerns, but they're a pretty big... Hey, I'm not saying they're bad. Calm down. Um... I've never gotten into them just because I've never sat down and made the effort, but I can appreciate the effect they have had on just American storytelling because there's some of the there's some legends in westerns that just it doesn't matter how many years passed it, there are people who can quote lines from specific westerns and I mean I uh, the the true grit. The, the, some, I heard some one, one guy over here said I watched it last night. I mean, they remade True Grit a few years ago. So much, yes, I, I know I've heard a lot of folks say that, but so much so to the point that it's so iconic that they didn't even change the script. The words are even the same because they couldn't even bring themselves to change the words in the movie from the original. But I struggled to name this sermon because I felt like there was a better title. Um, but I just went with this because this was more common. Anybody finish finish the line? Are you feeling lucky, punk? Feeling lucky, punk? Are you punk? Um, I almost changed the title of this sermon to "Are you feeling lucky, punk?" Um, because that that's kind of the attitude at the end of this that John tells us <clears throat> Christians ought to have. When Satan threatens us. We should, through our confidence in Christ, be able to stare down via the grace of God whatever Satan throws at us and say, you're feeling lucky, punk. Because at the end of the day, the worst Satan can do to you is kill you. Now that sounds pretty bad on the face. But when you know that you've got eternity on your side, killing you the worst be do, that's not all that bad. But temporally, it can be scary. There are lots of things that you can look at in life and say, I can't imagine it would get worse than this. But I promise you, it could get worse if you weren't a Christian. <laughs> There are plenty of worse things than death. Um, but God is not ignorant to the, the attempts of Satan to blaspheme him, to abuse, his, abuse Christians, to abuse those who put their faith in him. God is not ignorant to the suffering that we go through in this life. So I want us to see exactly how God handles the attacks of Satan and why we as Christians can be confident in their face. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. Uh, and, and this is, by the way, continuing to talk about the Antichrist. We'll briefly recap him in just a minute, who he is as a character. Verse 5, He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. 
It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of, the, a book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here's the patience and faith of the saints. Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand this word and to have great faith in you, that you see what goes on here. You're not ignorant of it, and you will make it right in the end. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what I want us to see today is that God has patience, but even his patience has a limit. Now, for Christians, that's a good thing. For Christians, the patience of God having a limit is a good thing because that means that one day the injustice of the world is going to be dealt with. But for those who reject Christ, for those who reject God, don't mistake the patience of God for tolerance and uncaring. That even God's patience has a limit. It's just so far beyond our limit that we think of it as though He doesn't have one. So first I want us to see that God won't tolerate blasphemy forever. Look at verses 5 and 6. John says, and he, who is the he? This is Antichrist. This is Satan's false Messiah. This is the greatest pretender in the history of the world. The one that Satan puts the full force of his power and temporary authority behind to rule the lost population of the world. And it says, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And I'm reading this passage studying for this sermon and I said, well, who in the world gives this beast his mouth? Satan can't give anybody, Satan can't make a mouth any more than he can make a man. Satan's not a creator. All Satan can do is twist the things God has already made for his evil ends. You ever heard somebody tell you when you were little, God made me and God don't make no junk? Yeah, well, okay, true. Okay, God did make you. And God doesn't make any junk. But if you've ever seen a kid playing with something really nice that your mama left you in your living room, a kid can take something that's not junk and mess it up pretty bad. Right? Okay, so God made us and we ain't no junk, but we can misuse what God gave us, can't we? Satan did not make this man's mouth. God made this man's mouth. And apparently, it's an amazing mouth. Not just like, it's really pretty to look at. But amazing in the sense that, have you ever noticed that some people just have, we call it charisma. It's the Greek word for gift or anointing. That someone is a charismatic speaker. They're a charismatic personality. That you can take two people and they can read the exact same text But the person that we would refer to as charismatic, man, they're just engaging. That you can follow them. It's it's how I it's the the anger that I feel whenever I hear Alistair Begg preach because he's got a Scottish accent and you could he could read the phone book and it would be riveting. Because you can't help but listen to him. He's that he's engaging. But then some people they read it back, they read the exact same thing, and it's just wooden and black. This guy has got a mouth on him that when he speaks, it's going to get everybody's attention. He's an incredible speaker. But what did he use this mouth for? He was given a mouth speaking great things. It doesn't say things in Greek, it just says megala. Mega. Big things. He talks a big game. But he doesn't just speak great things, he also speaks blasphemies. 
What is blasphemy? Insults toward God. Insults toward God. Speaking incorrectly about God. Saying things about God that are not fitting. That He is bold in His willingness to talk junk about God. And He was given authority to continue for 42 months. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. Who's the only one who has the authority to let someone persist in their sin for a limited period of time? God. Wait, God lets people sin? Are you breathing? Sure you are. Yes, God allows people to sin. When God created us with the ability to choose to obey Him or disobey Him, He really does give you the choice. You really can choose to disobey Him. And God is merciful and God is patient, but it doesn't say God gave Him the authority to continue right on, does it? It says God gave Him the authority to continue for 42 months. There's a limit on it. So that goes ahead and tells you in God's character, I know that you've got these amazing resources. I've given you this amazing gift of speech. This guy's probably the greatest orator that has ever walked the face of the earth because of how convincing he is and how charismatic he is and how easy to listen to and easy to believe he is. But he uses that for blasphemous, evil, wicked purposes. And God says, all right, you're going to talk, but you're going to talk for a short amount of time. You're not going to go on forever. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So there's an interesting um, fact about that last verse um, to blaspheme uh, the one, who, the, his name, and those who are in he- his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. In fact, some of your Bible translations probably show it. It comes across as blasphemes his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. In other words, it says those who dwell in heaven, the saints, are God's tabernacle. They are God's dwelling place. Y'all, church. Have you ever heard, you've, you've read the part of the Bible or you've heard me mention the part of the Bible before where it says we are temple, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That if you are a Christian, if you've ever given your life to Christ, God lives within you. You are His dwelling place. The Antichrist is not merely blaspheming God. He is blaspheming those that dwell in heaven, those that have already gone on to be with the Lord. He is also talking bad about them. If anyone, who, if anyone has died during this time period when Antichrist is on earth as a Christian through persecution or whatever else, he's saying they were a waste, their life was a waste of time. Look at what their faith in this God that you're talking about has gotten them. They died just like everybody else. Do you really want to be like him? God's a waste of time. Do you really want to be like her? Sure, they restricted you from doing everything you ever wanted to do. You didn't reach your potential. Think of everything you could have if you would just not listen to those folks who want you to deny yourself. Why deny yourself? You could be great. 
God doesn't want you to have that fruit because He knows as soon as you have it, you'll be like Him. Don't deny yourself. It's just like in the garden. All over again. Great things and blasphemies. Great things and blasphemies. Y'all, what is it about the tongue? Any of y'all ever had problems with your tongue? Anybody at all? You ever said something maybe you wish you hadn't said? Didn't say something you wish you had said? James 3 verses 8 through 10 says, No man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Why ought it not be so? Because the people you're talking about, they're made in God's image. The tongue that you're speaking with, God gave you. You only have the ability to speak because God gave you that ability to speak. Why is it such a damaging thing? Why is it so sinful for you to talk about someone else and blaspheme God by putting down someone else? It's because God gave you your tongue in order to glorify Him. The reason that you have a tongue is to glorify God through what you say. And how you speak about others. And what the Antichrist does is he says, I am the greatest. This tongue is for my glorification. This tongue is for my ambitions. This tongue is for my goals. And I will not use it to glorify this God. I will not use it to, to praise God's people. I will not use it. I will use it for me. The Antichrist is just like Satan. He fell into the same trap. Satan was an angel who got too full of himself and forgot that he was a creature and not the creator. He saw himself greater than he actually was, and so he blasphemously elevates himself. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can forget that we are creatures and not creators. That we are small, that God is big. That we exist for His glory, not for our own. We exist for His good, not for our own. We exist for His kingdom, not for our own. The Antichrist also falls into the same trap that every deputy of Satan has fallen into throughout the history of the world. He believes that you can defeat the people of God by doing something as small as killing them. He sees the people of God as less than they actually are and so blasphemously denigrates them. When he's blasting the people who are in heaven saying, see, that's a waste of time. They died and they could have had so much more. But now they're dead just like everybody else. What's the reality of Scripture? When a Christian dies, are they really dead in the same way as everybody else? No. No, they're not. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If I killed over right now, I would be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would be more alive than I've ever been. The same for anybody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and suffers death. You wouldn't be dead the same way a lost person would be. But the Antichrist doesn't get that. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says this, and this is, this, this is mind-blowing. 
It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible little g gods and goddesses. Now, why did he say that? Because God said, you know, I've made you in my image. And when you come to Christ, Jesus says, one day you will be like me. Not that you will be a God, but this is C.S. Lewis's way of saying that one day Christians will be like Christ. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are to some degree helping one another to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. No human being you have ever talked to will die and cease to exist. Every single one of us will live forever somewhere. You will either live forever as a child of God with glory reflecting the family. You ever heard somebody say they they bear the family resemblance? Do you know that one day as a Christian, someone will be able to look at you and say, Oh yeah, that's one of God's kids because they look like him. The angels can't say that, by the way. But do you know also one day somebody will be able to say, oh yeah, that's one of Satan's kids. I know, they look like him. Every single person you have ever talked to will live forever somewhere. Very obviously, very vividly, either a child of God or a child of the devil. The Antichrist pops off and runs his mouth against God and against his children because he thinks he's bigger and he thinks he's better. His words are going to come back and bite him. And anybody who talks like him, their words will come back and bite them too because God's not going to put up with it forever. Matthew 12, 35-37 says, A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak... Oh, this is scary. For every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Christian, non-Christian, your words matter. How do you talk about God? Maybe you say, well, I, talk, I don't ever say anything bad about God. What about God's people? How do you talk about the church? You ever heard somebody say something that sounds like this? Oh, I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. I got a relationship with God. I just can't go be with them people. They a bunch of, they a bunch of goody two-shoes better than you holier-than-thou hypocrites. Ever heard that? Anything somewhat like that? Well, the Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. I want you to imagine just for a second. I'm going to pick on Mark and Becky because they know I love them and they know I'm not serious. Can I do that? Will you give me permission to do that? Mark, I love you. I love hanging out with you. I love going and doing fun stuff with you. And I would love to go eat with you after church today. Is that cool? Just don't bring Becky. I can't stand her. Just put her in the car and send her home. She's a hypocrite. She's wicked. She's rude. She smells bad. 
you just send her home. Can I go hang out with you though? Why? Oh, so what you're saying is if I love you, I've got to love her because she's part of you. By the way, I don't believe any of that about me. Do I make my point? If the church is the bride of Christ and you love Jesus, you better love the church. Because if you don't love the church, I don't care what you say, you don't love Jesus. The church is part of Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confessions made unto salvation. Your words reveal the contents of your heart towards God and His people. What do they show about what's in you? If you were to, imagine, or if you were to examine the words that you spoke this week, what do they say about your heart towards God? What do they say about your heart towards His people? Because here's the reality. You don't have forever to figure it out because God's patience has its limits. Antichrist is limited. I promise you, you're limited. What do your words say about the contents of your heart toward God and His people? Do you find yourself talking about how frustrating it is to obey God? How tiring it is to obey God? Do you find yourself bad-mouthing your church? Bad-mouthing the church? If you do, what does that tell you? So first, blasphemy. God won't tolerate it forever. Second, well, God won't tolerate the abuse of His people forever. Look at verses 7 and 8. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Now this word overcome, y'all see this word on a daily basis. Y'all see this Greek word on a daily basis. What's the name of that company that's got the swoosh? Makes shoes? Nike. Nike. That's the Greek word overcome. The Greek word overcome is Nike. It means victory. To overcome. No, I'm not saying your shoes are demon shoes. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a generic Greek word that just means to overcome. So if it was granted to the Antichrist to overcome the saints, what does that mean that he can't do until it's granted to him? He can't overcome them. The only way that he is even allowed to make war against them is that God allows it. Why does God allow that? You want my big 50 cent theological answer? I don't know. But I can tell you that I question the true nature of this overcoming because in a sense the Roman Empire overcame Jesus, didn't they? They killed Him, right? But did they beat Him? No. They killed Him, but... Again, what's the worst you can do to a Christian? Kill us? We have one who's defeated death. So the overcoming is temporary. This overcoming cannot be permanent because Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Death shall not prevail against it. 
2 Corinthians 5.8 says it, that if we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. The worst the Antichrist can do is to kill God's people, but still, he does that. He does. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe and tongue and nation. This is not so much the giving authority as the giving over of authority. Listen to what happens in Romans 1. I didn't print this on your handout. I didn't even print this on my notes. I just have it here in red that we need to go back there. I'll explain to you why. Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God's shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to the uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. This is the working out of that verse. God says, I have shown you since the creation of the world who I am, what kind of God I am, that I am good, that I have standards of goodness, that I have loved you, that I'm gracious towards you, that I'm merciful towards you, but you don't want me. You want somebody else. You want somebody that you can see, that you can touch, that you can hear with your ears. You would rather worship a creature rather than a creator. So you plug your ears and you shut your eyes and you do what my daughter has started doing when she doesn't want to do what we tell her to do. I don't know where she picked this up. It makes me so frustrated. Um, You can say, Margaret, you dropped your milk. Pick it up and hand it to Daddy. Nah, nah, boo-boo. Why is she doing that? Well, if I can't see you and I can't hear you, you're not there. Now, you laugh at that as a baby, right? You laugh when a baby does that. But, y'all, that's what we do to God sometimes. We plug our ears and we close our eyes. If I can't see you and I can't hear you, you're not there. If I can't see you and I can't hear you, you're not there. I would rather follow somebody I can see. I would rather follow somebody I can touch. I would rather follow somebody who provides me something that my body can experience. My eyes, my ears, my mouth, my nose, uh, my, 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 you know, something that I can physically uh, grasp. I would rather follow that. Because that's here, that's with me. Nah, nah, boo-boo, God, you can't, I can't see you, I can't hear you, you're not there. And so God says, alright. This, this is one of the... Romans, Romans chapter 1 is one of the scariest chapters in Scripture to me because it's what the wrath of God really looks like. C.S. Lewis said there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says, fine, have it your way. These people in Revelation 13 have decided they want nothing to do with God. They don't want to hear Him. They don't want to listen to Him. They don't want to obey Him. And so God, rather than push and push and push and push and push, says, fine, have it your way. And they follow Antichrist and they believe in Him. And authority was given Him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship Him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, some of your translations have that verse in a different order. I actually have lots of notes in my handout on that. On that. But um, if, you want, if you want me to go through those with you, I'm making the executive decision right now that we'll deal with that in Revelation chapter 17 when it comes up again. We don't need to deal with that today because it, it, it's, it's a lot of, of textual hubbub that doesn't change the meaning of the verse. The idea here is if you don't know Jesus, you will be fooled by this man. That's the point. Not you might be fooled, but you will. And so the Antichrist makes war on the saints and the entire world gets behind him. The entire world says, you know what? He's right. Kill him. Wipe him out. They're really the problem. Does that sound crazy to you? That would never happen, right? A world leader would never single out a particular group of people and say they are the ultimate problem with the world and if we could just exterminate them, everything would be better. That would never happen, would it? Anybody remember the Third Reich? What did Hitler call his extermination of the Jews? He didn't call it the, the, the Holocaust. Holocaust is a negative term. That's why we call it that. It's horrible. It was horrific. Do you know what Hitler called his extermination of the Jews? The final solution. So they're the problem with the world. If we can wipe them out, it will all be better. Well, the Antichrist is going to have what he considers the final solution too. And the whole world is going to line up behind him. They'll be fooled. Was God going to tolerate this forever? Absolutely not. Matthew 25, 44 and 45. Then they'll answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. 1 John 3, 13 and 14. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. How do you treat other people? How do you treat specifically other believers? Do you love them? Do you treat them like family? Do you help them when they hurt? Do you weep with them when they're crying? Do you celebrate with them when they're joyful? Do you rely on them when you need them? Or do you badmouth them? Do you mistreat them? Do you carry grudges against them? Are you angry at them? 
Because the reality is, you've got to ask yourself, why is that in my heart? Why is that there? Because God will not tolerate the abuse of His people forever. And if you can abuse the church and not have something prick your conscience about that, you're lost. Well, you don't understand. That church didn't, that church didn't serve me. That church didn't feed me. They could have treated me better. Well, listen, churches are made up of people, okay? Your pastor's a person too. I'm sure that there are some of you in this room that I have offended at one point or another because I could have done a better job ministering to you. I'm willing to admit that, and I'm sorry. But if you can stay home from church and not mingle with us because one person offended you one time and you ain't ever even spoke to them about it and you can do that with a clean conscience, that's not the heart of somebody who loves the church. If you can nurse that anger and nurse that bitterness and hate them that much, Scripture says there's going to come along somebody one day who's going to provide something for you that will be impressive. It will be convincing. And you will follow them. Why? Because your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You wanted somebody who could provide something that you could experience, and you're going to find somebody one day who can do it better. If you love the church, or if your name's written in Jesus' book, you will love the church, and you will stick with it, and you will be there. You won't abuse it. Your love for God's people reveals your love for God. What does it show you about what's in you? How do you feel about the church? God won't tolerate the abuse of His people forever. And then I've got a note here for an illustration that I'll just leave off here so you can say, well, wait a minute, this guy's going to go to war against the saints. He's going to overcome it. Did y'all ever watch Looney Tunes? I can't remember the last time I saw an actual Looney Tune on television. Y'all ever remember Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner? How he was always convinced his next plan was going to be the one that finally caught that bird. And he'd buy the big bomb and he'd try and drop it on the bird and it would blow up before he dropped it. That's what's happened to Satan every time he's tried to wipe God's people out. It just blows up in his face. That's the way this eventually is going to work. That if you think you found somebody that can replace the church for you and so you're going to bash the church, be careful because it's only a minute before Wiley Coyote shows himself. God's not going to tolerate abuse of His people. And then finally, God won't tolerate the suffering of His people together. Well, isn't that the same as the abuse? No, it's not. Abuse of His people is from the people who are actually doing it. Suffering is what we experience. All y'all seasoned saints in here that have been walking with Jesus for a lot longer than me, when you came to Jesus, did the suffering in your life stop? No? I thought when you came to Jesus, everything was supposed to be better. Why y'all shaking your heads? Is that wrong? <laughs> yeah. When you come to Christ, that doesn't automatically mean that all of your suffering is going to stop. And if, and if somebody's told you that, please let me correct that for you. Because I don't want that to damage your faith. If someone has ever told you that when you come to Jesus, all your suffering is going to end, that's not true. It will eventually end, but right here on this earth, right now, temporally, 
Y'all, if the point of Jesus saving you was just to get you to heaven, why when you trusted Christ didn't He just snatch you up there? He could do that if He wanted to, couldn't He? No. He intends for you to live here for Him. To show other people to Him. He's got more purpose in your life than for you just to be snatched up into heaven. Why, if, if Jesus has saved you, why do people still end up with cancer? Why do people still lose their jobs? Why do people still get sick? Why do people still get hit in car wrecks? Why, do, why does all this suffering still happen? Well, because we exist to glorify God. And you can glorify God in some situations in ways that you couldn't glorify Him without Him. But that suffering is not going to last forever. Verse 9 says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. This is John's way of saying, well, Guys, what I'm about to say is important. Now these next verses, verse 10, I am going to get into the Greek on this for a minute because it can be confusing. And this is probably the cleanest application of anything else today. The New King James says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. If you have something different than that, raise your hand. I know several of you do. It's not because you have different Greek. It's because it's very difficult to translate. New American Standard people have, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Anybody who has an English Standard Version, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. I tend to line up more with the ESV. I think that's the closest that the Greek, I think that's the closest you can get to Greek. Why? This is very similar to Jeremiah 43, 11. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's almost identical in construction to Revelation. And it comes out, When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death, to captivity those appointed for captivity, and to, sword, to the sword those appointed for the sword. What is John telling you when he says this? He's saying, Church, you are going to suffer. Y'all ever seen that movie with Liam Neeson, Taken? It's, it, it, it came out years ago. It's, it's a movie where Liam Neeson is a former Special Forces soldier. And his daughter, for some reason whatsoever, decides to go um, on vacation around Europe by herself. And while she gets over there, human traffickers break into the house and attempt to abduct her. And so she calls her dad, the formal, former Special Forces soldier, whose job it was to track down people and to find them. And he tells his daughter, you know, she tells him, Dad, there's somebody in the house. They've already taken my friend. I think they're going to come get me. I don't understand how a father would do this, but it's very clear in the movie his training kicks in. He says, okay, honey. Calm voice. He says, I want you to listen to me. Go to the farthest bedroom at the other end of the house you can. Okay, okay. She runs in there. I want you to get under the bed. Okay. She gets under the bed. Now what? The next part is very important. They are going to take you. 
Wait a minute, Dad. You're supposed to tell me how to get out of this. You're supposed to tell me how to keep this from happening. But you're not. No, he says, they're going to take you. When they do, I want you to lay the phone on the ground and scream as much detail about who they are as you can so that I can hear it. So you hear them come in the room. You see them walk around the edge of the bed. And she sits the phone on the floor. And sure enough, they reach under and grab her. And she starts screaming, six foot, you know, six foot three, uh, beard, tattoo, left arm, all these other things. And, finally, and, and the guy taking her realizes what's happening. He reaches under the bed and gets the phone and picks it up and goes, Hello? And if I can't remember anything else about this movie, I remember what Liam Neeson says next. He says, put my daughter on the ground and leave. Guy goes, why would I do that? And he said, over the course of my career, I have acquired a very specific set of skills. I'm very good at what I do. Things will go better for you if you leave the girls and go. Because if you don't, I will hunt you, I will find you, and I will kill you. And the guy says, good luck, and hangs up the phone. Now, of course, I would not be bringing this movie up if you didn't know what happens at the end. Liam Neeson hunts them, he finds them, and he kills them. And he takes his daughter back. In a weird, roundabout way, Y'all, that movie's a little bit the gospel. <laughs> Satan comes after us and attempts to just thoroughly end us. And Jesus shows up and says, put my children on the ground and leave. Because if you don't, I have a very specific plan for you. I will hunt you down. I will find you. And I will cast you into the lake of fire. Satan said, good luck. We've reached the end of the movie. Right here, verse 10, is Jesus saying, listen to me. Christians, they're going to hate you. They're going to kill you. They're going to mock you. They're going to hurt you. But do not think for one second that you're going to come out on the wrong end of this. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. I am not going to stand up here as your pastor and tell you that everything is going to be okay on this earth because it might not. But what I will tell you is that when you suffer for the name of Christ, don't think that God has abandoned you. Don't think that His plan has failed. He will find you. And He will bring you home. You're not going to stay in suffering for forever. 
Acts 5.41 says they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing because suffering gives you an opportunity to glorify God in a unique way. My last church, I knew a man named Randy Pritchard. I've mentioned this in here before. He fought cancer for the majority of his life. And cancer eventually ended up being what killed him. But the last time he went into the hospital, my pastor went to go see him. And he said, Phil, I hope that I make it at least another couple of days. And he said, well, Randy, heaven ain't bad, brother. You can go on and be with Jesus. And Randy said, I know, Phil, that's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is that the nurse, rota- the nurse rotation changes in a couple of days. And there's a nurse that I haven't gotten to share the gospel with yet. And if I live a couple more days, then I'll get a chance to tell her about Jesus before I die. That man was dying of cancer and wasn't concerned about his own death so much as he was concerned about the nurse rotation. He couldn't have done that if he wasn't dying of cancer. He wasn't asking at that point for God to get him out of it. He was asking for God to use him in it. I guarantee you right now, Randy wouldn't trade what he's got for anything that we do. Matthew 24, 9-13 says, They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Christian, you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, stop asking to get out of it. If you're asking God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, saying, take this away from me, take this away from me, take this away from me, take this away from me. It might be, and God haven't done it, it might be because He's, His plan for you is not to take it away from you. It might be to take you through it. But I promise you, there's glory on the other side of it. But the common thread between all of these is that you've got limited time to figure out 